Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. So this is the first episode in a special mini-series highlighting the work of the Sacred Rights Public Scholarship on Religion cohort of 2019. Sacred Rights provides support, resources, and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. The reason this matters is because as a high school teacher whose job it is for me to distill the big ideas and complexity of academic research down into digestible forms for young people, I need groups like Sacred Rights. I admire their work and their mission. Sacred Rights helps people like me understand the hard work of the academic community for those of us who are outside of it, but who also care about new and big ideas within the humanities. So since I have gained so much knowledge from the public scholarship of Sacred Rights cohort members, I decided to invite each member of the cohort to appear across the next nine episodes. These special conversations are woven together by the thread of the importance of public scholarship. So my first guest in this Sacred Rights series is Dr. Tia Noel Pratt. Dr. Pratt is a higher education professional, researcher, and inclusion and diversity specialist based in Philadelphia. She got her PhD in sociology from Fordham University, and she is a sociologist of religion and an expert in systemic racism with experience researching and writing about how systemic racism impacts African-American Catholics. So in this conversation, we discuss two of Dr. Pratt's public scholarship articles, First, we discuss the article Black Catholics, Racism, and the Sex Abuse Crisis, released in March 2020 from The Revealer, which is a fantastic magazine. Second, we discuss there is time for the church to support black Catholics if it has the will to do so, which was released in September 2019 from America, the Jesuit Review. So, as a lifelong Catholic, Dr. Pratt discusses her personal Catholicism, her academic research and writing within Catholicism, and also the uneasiness and tension she has felt over the years as she has researched and written about Catholic sex abuse crises and systemic racism within the church. Both articles discussed in the episode are in the show notes, just in case that you would like to do any pre or post reading involving the contents of this episode. 
to learn more, you can follow us all on social media. You can find Dr. Tia Noel Pratt on Twitter at TiaPhD. You can follow Sacred Rights on Twitter at Sacred underscore Rights. And you can follow me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas. So without further delay, here is my conversation on African-American Catholic identity, systemic racism, and the sex abuse crisis with Dr. Tia Noel Pratt. Dr. Tia Pratt, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's a delight to have you. Um, Can you spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit? Sure. Uh, So I am Tia Noel Pratt, and I am a sociologist of religion. And basically what that means is I, I use the tools of sociology to study religion. So um, I'm not a theologian, but the, theology and, and the work of theologians figure prominently in, in what I do. And specifically, uh, my focus is on systemic racism in the Catholic Church and how that racism impacts African-American Catholic identity. Excellent. How did sociology and religion come to be combined areas of academic interest for you? What's the backstory of how you converged on these two areas? So really, the the two came together um, towards the end of my undergraduate days. Uh, I was a sociology major as an undergrad, but I had a real interest in religion. And Initially, I didn't know that as a sociologist, I could study religion. I thought I might have to veer off into theology. Um, but that's that's really one of the, the challenges of the discipline is that undergraduate students rarely get exposed to sociology of religion. So one of the things that really interested me in both so- bringing sociology and religion together and in the work that I've wound up doing basically ever since is that I grew up in a, started off in in a predominantly African-American parish. And so the idea that um, there were both African-American folks and Catholic folks um, were, it, it, it made perfect sense to me because that's who my family was. That's what I saw growing up uh, in, in the parish. But as I got more involved in sociology, as I, as my interest in religion grew, I realized that in most spaces, both public spaces and academic spaces, being both Black and Catholic were seen as a disparate identity. And I knew that it wasn't. And so I, I set out to make that clear in in both academic and public spaces. Interesting. Okay, where did you grow up in the country, if I may ask? Sure. I grew up in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is still uh, one of the key places where you find a a strong contingent of African-American Catholics, um, where we have parishes that are predominantly African-American. There are fewer now than there were when I was growing up, but um, we still have them in in much of the country. um, There aren't necessarily enough African-American Catholics in one place 
to comprise a, a predominantly black parish. But in Philadelphia, there are. Gotcha. Is Are there any estimates about how many African-American Catholics there are in the United States? That is totally unfamiliar to me. So according to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, there are three million uh, black Catholics in the U.S. And that number encompasses African-Americans, Afro-Caribbeans, and African immigrants, but does not usually include, that number does not usually include Afro-Latinos who are more often um, included with the Latinx population. Excellent. Is this nationwide too, or like, as you mentioned, Philadelphia being sort of like a um, a large area for African American mm-hmm. Catholics? What are some of the other hot spots around the country where African American Catholics tend to live more? Sure, um, Chicago, New York, um, New Orleans, Baltimore are are some of your your key hot spots. Really, all of Louisiana. Um, yeah, Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York. Um, those are those are some some key uh, places. Gotcha. Okay, good good for demographic knowledge. I like that. So you and I um, were brought together sort of on, on this project that I'm doing with the Sacred Rights Public Scholarship Group, um, and you are a 2019 fellow for Sacred Rights in Religion, and it's now 2020. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm interested how and why you became interested in pursuing this particular opportunity with this public scholarship group in religion. So it was really the a lot of different things coming together. Um, I realized that we didn't really have a lot of sociologists participating in public discourse. And I thought that was... Um, a real, a, a real absence. I mean, I could feel the, the absence of a sociological perspective in, in public discourse. And religion is something that is really underappreciated in public discourse in the way that religion influences um, how, how our society functions, whether it's in the realm of politics or, or policy or the, you know, the decisions that people make in their everyday lives. And I would, I would see scholars who, you know, something would happen. There would be something in the news and the next day they, they would have an op-ed about it in, in the newspaper. And I wanted to know how they did that. I wanted to know how, because my own writing, it, it would take so long to develop that by the time I would get something together, the, the, the news cycle had passed and had moved on to, mm. to something else or maybe two or three other things. And so when this opportunity came up, I really saw it as, as a way to make connections because not only did I not know really how, how to do that, how to um, kind of translate what I work on and think about all the time to a public audience, um, I, didn't, I didn't know even if I had something, how do I get it to the newspaper? How do I get it to a particular magazine that's looking for something right away? And so this, uh, when I saw this opportunity with Sacred Rights, it it really seemed like a way to to do that, to bring all those things together. 
I love it. It seems like you're, you know, you have all this knowledge in your head that you study for so many years and the, you know, the peer review process can slow so much down with regards to getting what you're finding out into the world. So this seems like a perfect sort of compromise, right? Right. Yeah. And that, that's really um, exactly what, what I was thinking about. And there's something, there's, there's something wonderful about writing something and submitting it and you see it in print in hours or days rather than weeks or months, which is what happens with the peer review process. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So I've been reading some of your work this week and it's, it's very, it's very honest. It's very personal. And you openly write in your work about being Catholic and your experiences of being Catholic. Um, What do you love about Catholicism? And I start off with that question because we're going to talk about some, some conflict that you feel as well, but mm-hmm. um, I'm curious what you know, what you love about Catholicism and what sustains you within your tradition. You know, that's, well, first, thank you for reading my work. You're welcome. Um, we, we, we write and send things out into the world. And then I, I often wonder, does it just lay in the void? But uh, to know that it gets read is wonderful. Um, you know, that really is a question that I struggle with, and that's something that has come out in in the writing over the last year or so. Um, the things that I love about Catholicism, you know, it, it really it is tied to being a sociologist. You know, I, I love the the organizational rhythm. Of Catholicism, I love the the ritual of of practice and of mass, and um, you know what what sustains me is I mean that that's more kind of like a everyday practice ritual type thing. But what sustains me, especially with these more difficult things that uh, have come out in the writing, is some of the core theology of Catholicism, you know, the core theology of of Catholicism, of the Eucharist being the body and blood of Christ, being the true presence, and to receive the Lord in the Eucharist, and to be at one with my Lord in that most sacred and intimate way, it is sustaining, it is comforting, especially in, in times of of conflict, of frustration, be it, you know, the the issues that are, are facing the world we live in right now, or, or just the, the issues that I face uh, as a scholar who studies the tradition that I'm a part of. See, that's really interesting to me, because, you know, growing up Catholic, you didn't have to become a scholar looking into Catholicism, like you could have studied anything. But um, I feel like that your experience is so unique in that you research the religious tradition that you personally adhere to, which seems somewhat unique and as if it may come with some serious internal challenges. And so like, you know, all researchers have a story about how and why they do what they do on like any given day and any given year. Um, And it's intrinsic that drives a lot of people's academic work. And so you research, as you as you mentioned earlier, and write about systemic racism and sex abuse in the Catholic Church. So what got you interested in researching the Catholic Church in the first place as a scholar, given that you were already an insider in the tradition? 
Well, well, one thing, and you you mentioned, you know, studying my own tradition. And I remember being in graduate school and a professor said to me, well, you can't study your own tradition. Um, mind you, a, a colleague of his who wound up being my dissertation mentor was also Catholic and studied Catholicism. Mm. But in that in that moment, I just looked at him and said, watch me. And I got up and walked away. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do think there is something that is very essential and, and important, especially when you're doing religion and about studying your own tradition, because otherwise there is the, the great risk, which I see a lot in scholarship on Catholicism done by non-Catholics and you scholars who wind up coming across like they're explaining the Statue of Liberty to New Yorkers. Mm. Um, and, you know, being able, being in the, the tradition for my entire life, it, it gives me a, a perspective that those who are not part of the tradition uh, wouldn't have. Um, what really got me into studying Catholicism was this this point of real of realization that there were so there were so many people, both in, in public spaces and scholarly spaces, that thought being black and Catholic didn't go together. And I knew that just wasn't true. Mm. And so I set about uh, to to break that myth single-handedly if I had to. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so some of the topics that you write about um, are very challenging, sex abuse, systemic mm-hmm. racism. And this is one of those things to where um, I'd imagine that studying these topics has pushed your ability to be deeply associated with Catholicism in many ways. Mm-hmm. How did um, these issues of sex abuse and systemic racism within the institution come to um, grab your interest? So, well, I'll, I'll start with the systemic racism piece. You know, I was I was in graduate school and trying to really figure out what it was that I, I was doing. I, I felt like I was spinning my wheels a bit was doing all of this work and, and couldn't really explain it to anybody in three sentences or less. Yeah, the elevator speech in academia, right? Right. And I was at a department colloquium when I was in graduate school, and I was doing that, spinning my wheels, talking about my work. And a professor said, I think what you really mean, what you're really saying is identity. And I, it was a, it was a revelation. And so that's where the identity piece came in. And as I continued to, to move on through the work, I realized that I couldn't talk about African-American Catholic identity without talking about systemic racism. Because so much of African-American Catholics' experiences are tied to systemic racism in the church. Can you give me an example of sort of like what that looks like within the church? Sure. I mean, that looks that looks like a, so many things that that and things that don't exist in a vacuum. You know, we can we can start with the church as an institution and its ties to slavery. Uh, we can look at 
you know, religious communities like like the Jesuits and the Vincenzans and their ownership of slaves and what does that mean? We can look at um, communities like the Josephites and the the work of people like Father Slattery to create a a, a black priesthood within the United States because if there he knew that if there wasn't one that there weren't going to be numbers significant numbers of black catholics in the US and yet there were there was you know he, his work as progressive as it was was hindered by his own paternalism it there you know issues of uh Black folks who are Catholic being denied admission to Catholic colleges and universities. Mm. The fact that we have to this day so few black priests in the United States and black men who were uh, not admitted to the seminary uh, outwardly for so long. And and even now, there's still so much... um, racism and, and difficulty that black seminarians experience. Um, so, and that leads us to things that we see today with the the low numbers of African-Americans in the priesthood and religious life at our Catholic colleges and universities. Um, so all, none of this, none of this exists in a vacuum. You know, there, there's a, a, a line to be drawn between all of these things um, that I just mentioned. And the, the sex abuse piece is, is more recent. Um, that came, came about um, more recently. Actually, the, the Associated Press has an ongoing series called The Reckoning, mm. where, where they're looking at the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church um, from the perspective of race. And a, a colleague, um, Dr. Brian Kleitz, who is another um, sacred rights uh, cohort yeah. member. And he, he spends a lot more time with the sex abuse crisis. And so when the, the conversations began to turn to race, he, he directed the folks um, from the AP to me. And so I started talking about with them and thinking about it more. And then I was, I was asked by Dr. Brett Krusich, who's uh, the editor of the revealer. He's another cohort member of mine. Um, and along with Brian and to, to write uh, about the sex abuse crisis from the perspective of race. And one of the things that, an EP reporter told me was, you know, in, in talking to survivors and going to events where survivors were present, that there were no people of color there. And it didn't seem like there could be no people of color amongst survivors. Mm. And, I mean, of course, of course, that that's the case. Of course, there are people of color amongst the, the survivors. Um so the idea of, of putting these things together um, came about really through, through those conversations. But that's been um, incredibly difficult. The, the work on systemic racism is already difficult enough. 
Um, the the sex abuse crisis, you know, I, I grew up in Philadelphia, as I've said. Um, and so the sex abuse crisis hit Philadelphia very deeply. Um, we There were two large-scale grand jury investigations um, in Philadelphia that exposed so much um, and of what had been going on for decades. And there were, as I wrote about in the piece, in the revealer, there were a number of those who were accused in that first grand jury report back in 2005 that had been um, assigned to my home parish. Um, so, so to know, and this was, and they were assigned to my home parish after the archdiocese mm. had been made aware, um, of accusations against them. So, so they, so they knew, they knew what they were doing when they sent them to my parish. Gotcha. Well, and you've got these two articles that I just read too. So you have a March, 2020 from the revealer called black Catholics, racism mm-hmm. and the sex abuse crisis. And then you also have a 2019 one called mm-hmm. there is time for the church to support black Catholics if it has the will to do so. And mm-hmm. a question that I'm wondering is, um, you write in your work about sitting down with and listening to stories of people for whom this institution has failed. Um, what do they? What are some stories that they've told you? Well, well, all that's going to be in my book. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> but you know, there, there are stories of you know. Older people, especially, I mean, this, who were, who have told me about uh, at their, at their first communion as, as second graders at the, at the first communion, that all of the white children were allowed to come up and receive their first communion. And it was only when they were done and returned to their seats could the one or two black children in the group be able to receive their first communion. Um being, you know, essentially cast aside in, in that way as, as a small child um, that that leaves a mark. These are people in their 80s who who tell who describe this as if it happened last week. Um, you know, the 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 pain of losing one's parish um, when when churches close and parishes are reorganized. The that is a a deep deep um issue you know uh there is there is a a culture in in philadelphia in in particular um certainly not exclusive to philadelphia but very much in philadelphia that you know the parish is 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 your home it's where it's your it's your lifeblood it's where everything happens and to lose that is a big deal Um, one of the things that i i often say is that you know, when we talk about the church, you know, we can talk about the church in a number of ways. Cardinal Avery Dulles um, talked about five different ways in which, you know, the ch- uh, uh, ways of, of describing the church. And certainly we can talk about the church as the people of God. And that is more than just a building. But when the big moments of your life, literally from birth to death, happen in that building, and in some families, happen in the same building for generations. It is a very big deal when that building's not there anymore. Mm, yes. So, 
You know, there's another detail that you just mentioned earlier about how priests with credible allegations against Mm -hmm. them are sent to communities of poor African-American and Native Catholics as well, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And in the work, you document a story of one family who, Mm -hmm. um, you know, is able to receive minuscule settlements after suffering years of abuse in their diocese. I'm curious how, um, you know, much has been made of settlements, sex abuse settlements in the church Mm -hmm. for the last, um, you know, however many years. How do settlements for abused poor people compare to those in more affluent communities? So with the, with the family that I uh, mentioned in the revealer piece, which, and their, their story was first documented in, in the, Reckoning series in the AP, the Love Family, it it was about it wasn't just about the fact that they're poor. It was about the fact that they're poor and black, mm. um, because what there's there's documentation showing that low income white survivors still receive more than poor or low income black survivors. So it, it's not just about you know, having a, a good attorney, being able to afford a good attorney or having uh, some kind of uh, insider knowledge about how all of this works. Um, so when when that when there's evidence of that, it's it's not just about their socioeconomic status. It's also about race. It's it's about the fact that they are less than even in their status as survivors of these horrific crimes. They're still less than because they're black. In the work you write about, sort of describing yourself almost as like a professional agitator because Mm -hmm. you are still Catholic, but you know Mm -hmm. about so many of the uglier sides of the institution from mm-hmm. the last however many years. Um, how do you not leave? And what do you see as your role in openly speaking up about this while also calling yourself sort of a professional agitator? Because I really liked that. <laughs> yeah, as a professional agitator or, or you know, I, I make people mad at me for a living. <laughs> um so, you know, what what keeps me here is it differs from day to day. And, and to be honest with you, some days I don't have an answer. Um, what, but as I, as I wrote about in in the America piece from from last September, you know, I I do have faith that the church can be its better self. Mm even if it has to get there without me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do believe strongly in working to change institutions from within those institutions, because there's only so much that can be done from the outside when you're you know, on the outside banging on the door. You've got to be in the room. You've got to be at the table. Um, that's that's an incredibly important if there's going to be real change, real structural change that moves, uh, you know, the needle away from 
systemic racism and towards racial justice. Um, you know, how does it, how does it happen? It, it, it changes from day to day. You know, um, you know, I look at my family, my, my friends, my, my students, my, my life in this church and ultimately I, I have come down to the, on the side of, I'd rather be here than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Do you but know I oh, also, sorry. No, that's quite right. I, I also, some days I also feel like I've got one foot out the door. Mm. Um, but yes. Well, and you, you write about, you know, hoping that that better Catholic church will emerge and it seems Mm -hmm. hopeful. Do you have any specific ideas for like policies or goals or initiatives you feel like the church could start right now this year that would quell some of your discomfort and engage you so deeply that you might want to like join up in some kind of like leadership um, to help further their, these agenda items for making the church a better place for all Catholics. Well, there is a, a number of ways that that can happen. Um, You know, there's, well, one is just, Owning up to owning up to the 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 issues um, that that I've that I've mentioned, you know, when I mentioned earlier, kind of drawing that line and and coming down on the side of the things that that we're looking at today don't happen in a vacuum. Um, there is a, a piece for America a few months ago by Olga uh, Marina Segura who talked about essentially a, a 1619 project for the church. Mm, and, interesting. And that's something that I would be very excited about. Um, you know, there are, there are a number of, of different ways, you know, we have to look at, we have to look at things like in our, in our schools, at admissions practices, hiring practices. You know, if, if we look at our, our Catholic schools and, especially the ones that are in neighborhoods that, that serve almost exclusively, if not exclusively, black and brown children. And yet the, the people who are educating those children are not black and brown. Mm-hmm. Then we have to ask why. And then we have to take steps to make sure that that can happen. Um, we have to, so, so things like hiring practices, things like you know, discipline, how discipline in schools, this disciplinary procedures, you know, are, are white children and black children treated differently for, for the same infractions. And, and if they are, then that needs to be addressed. I mean, looking at real structural issues in our institutions are, are ways that, that the needle can move. So you mentioned a book earlier. Tell me about your next plans for keeping that needle moving for yourself. So I am working on hopefully getting close to, to finishing a, a book on on these issues um, of systemic racism and an African American Catholic identity. Um, so that's what I'm what I'm working on right now. In a, in addition to to my public scholarship and my my work 
it, it sustains me, but it also challenges me. And, and sometimes I'm sitting at my computer typing and I think to myself, I'm going to lose my religion writing this book. <laughs> um, but, and that's really kind of what, what inspired the, the America piece for, for back in September that, that you mentioned earlier, I was sitting at my computer thinking, I'm going to lose my religion writing this book, mm. but the work is important and it still has to get done. Um, so, so that's, really what what i'm what i'm working on so it the the book looks at um a few different things it, it ties together a few different things it kind of connects the dots of, of systemic racism and how these things don't don't exist in a vacuum uh it looks at liturgy as a form of identity work for african-american catholics um and the section that i'm working on right now is about St. Peter Claver Parish in Philadelphia, which was the first parish in Philadelphia to minister exclusively to African-Americans. Um, this is a, a parish that was founded by black Catholics at the end of the 19th century because they weren't welcome in established parishes uh, in the diocese, uh, and yet were, remained devoted in their Catholicism and remain desirous of a church home. Um, and so so that that actually helps keep me going too, to, to know that um, you know the those those first parishioners of St. Peter Claver didn't have laws on their side, whether people kept to them or not, they didn't have laws on their side the way that I do. And yet they kept going. Um, they were in, insistent on having their church. Um, that that's a very big deal. It is, and it honors the untold or undertold history of uh, of that particular parish. I think. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, um, Doctor Tia Pratt. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more about what you do, follow you, find your work, etc.? Where are you? So I thank you for asking. I have a website, tiapratt.com. Excellent. And I'm also on Twitter at tiaphd. Uh, so those are two very easy and accessible places to find me. And, and for... To- and for anybody listening, I will link to the articles that we've discussed today uh, from uh, America and from the Revealer and also link to the website and the Twitter links. So um, you can find those in the show notes, dear listener. So Dr. Tia Pratt, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas to chat about your work. Um, I look forward to uh, following you in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.